0: And so we long to preach the message of repentance, of turning to Christ. I hope that that was urgent for you this week, and that will remain urgent for you all of your life, only increasing. Not a panic, not frantic, somehow if I don't do it, if I don't get out there right now, but to remember that the axe is laid off. And for every man, the judgment of God who is not in Christ, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is already upon them. Has already been decided. We call them back from judgment, not we. We somehow provide a way that then that decision will be made. It's already made.
1: Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church, located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and if you'll stand, I'll again be reading verses 1 through 12 as we continue with the message of repentance, the message of the herald, and we begin to discuss the Judgment of the Herald, that is how he talks about, continues to talk about the coming judgment. So Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will gather thoroughly, excuse me, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. Now, excuse me, someone has once said that the world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. And we kind of chuckle at that and smile knowingly, but at the best of times, we are a people who are wrapped up in ourselves. We live our lives for our own pleasure. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Even when we are depressed, despairing, or discouraged about what is going on in our lives, we are still at the center of our own universe, tending to view everything in relationship to what it is accomplishing for us and for our happiness. There's only one remedy to this solution. And that is to recognize our bankruptcy and inability and to exalt the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way to get our eyes off ourselves is to discover that there is something more worthy than we, and that is our Lord. So what we'll see this morning is that true repentance always involves recognizing our own foolishness, sinfulness, and inability, and exalting the wisdom, righteousness, and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, true repentance always involves recognizing our own foolishness, sinfulness, and inability, and exalting the wisdom, righteousness, and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the message of John the Baptist. He came preparing the way for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he came crying, Repent. Repent, as we have been discussing, is first a turning, from, a turning from our sin, a recognition of its evil, an understanding of our, our being deserving of eternal punishment and desiring to turn from that, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the king is coming. And so there's a turning to the king. And this morning, we begin to turn towards that side of the message, away from our sin, towards the one who is coming, who has redeemed us, who is our king with whom we must have a personal relationship and the only means of entering into that relationship and thus into his kingdom is total righteousness, complete righteousness. And so we must turn away from our own attempts and turn to him. We've seen the person of John the Baptist predicted by Isaiah, dressed like Elijah, the one, the Elijah-like prophet who himself said when they asked him, he said, I'm not Elijah. When they asked Jesus, he said, well, if, if, if you will, he's Elijah, but... Not actually. He is the one who comes really introducing my first coming. There is an Elijah, the Elijah, who will come and introduce my second coming. So he's the Elijah-like prophet who comes according to prophecy. He comes just as it is promised he will come in fulfillment of all the things that the Lord has given, that he might introduce the true Messiah. And We've seen his work. He's baptizing in the Jordan River. They are coming to him as they confess their sins. And so God is using his message his message of repentance to truly change the hearts of the people. They are repenting, many of them. And they are coming, as we saw in verse 6, that they are coming to confess their sins. And as they confess their sins, they're stepping down into the water as as best we can understand the scenario, and they are being baptized as John hears them confessing. And the reason we know that there is a difference between those who came confessing and those who didn't confess is that when those who come aren't confessing their sin, he stops them. And that's where we begin last week, is the rebuke of the herald as He rebukes those who come for the wrong reasons. And really, we looked at a fourfold rebuke. First, the object of the rebuke, we discussed that it was the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we looked a little bit at their origins, what they were like. And it says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 7 coming for baptism, no mention of repentance here, no mention of confession that he says to them, instead of, come down into the waters, I will baptize you. Here are the things that you you need to do. Here's what you need to accomplish. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You dangerous, deceitful, deadly snakes. Because they had not repented. And that is where we all stand before a holy God, if we have not recognized the nature of our sin. We remain deadly, we remain deceitful, and we remain even self-deceived, All right, ourselves, if we have not come confessing our sins, recognizing that before a holy God we are found wanting, and that He is righteous in His judgment of us. The Pharisees instead came, he really that the fourfold rebuke was that you're coming for the wrong reason. They weren't coming to actually confess their sin, they were coming to be part of the show. And in fact, really it seems to co opt the show. John was becoming more and more popular, and that, of course, was very dangerous to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we'll see that all throughout their ministry, as it were, all throughout Christ's ministry, that what, they are, that what they are continually concerned about is not the message of Christ, not the works of Christ. In fact, I was just reading this week, the amazing thing, Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are talking about it, and they don't deny in any way that he actually did that. They don't say, well, he didn't really raise someone from the dead. He's just fooling the people. They say, he's doing great works. We need to kill him. That is the heart of the self-righteous, self-proclaimed, redeemed sinner who remains in their sins. It doesn't matter what Jesus does. We kill him. We want him out of the way because he does not satisfy us. Because we may not be on the throne. We may not be in charge if Jesus is. And that's why they're coming. They don't want him in charge. In this case, John. They don't want John in charge. They want to be in charge. When Jesus comes, they'll do exactly the same thing. And they will go even further to ultimately plot and to bring about in their own understanding the death of the Savior. So he says, you're not coming for the right reason. I rebuke you. You're not coming confessing. You are coming to impress the people, to be part of the show. And and then he lays it out. He says, do uh, or do profess deeds or or do deeds which are in keeping with repentance. You are not truly repentant. You're self-righteous. So he exposes them, says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse eight, he exposes them as coming, already feeling like they had done what they needed to be righteous. They didn't need to repent in their own mind because they were already righteous. Remember that the Pharisees themselves said, well, well, we obey the law of God. The Sadducees would say, we obey the first five books of the Bible. We're doing that. And then the Pharisees would add hundreds of laws on top of that to say, look how obedient we are. We're, We're over obedient. We're more than obedient, and therefore we have to be righteous. And our understanding, what we realize, what they did not realize, is that adding to Scripture only indicates your lack of righteousness, not your innate righteousness. The fact that you would have to add that you are going to put those things in your own standards so that you can prove yourself righteous only indicates that you are not righteous at all. So he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You have not repented. And your actions demonstrate your own self-righteousness. They didn't believe they needed the baptism of John. They came to impress the people. They came to be part of the the whole uh, ministry, his ministry, so they could co-opt it. And then he says, you are wrongly trusting in your Jewish heritage. He condemns them for not only trusting in their own self-righteousness, but for trusting in their ethnic position. We are the ethnic people of God. We are children of Abraham. And we, we discussed last week that they were so confident in that, that they really believed the merits of Abraham would even would keep them from hell in and of themselves. In fact, as the story goes, Abraham, they said Abraham himself would plan himself before the gates of Hades. And if any Jews went that way, say, no, not you. You're my children. My merits cover yours. Go to heaven. That's, that was their view of it, that their ethnic they were ethnically superior on the basis of being God's chosen people. And, and again, there, there are certainly great benefits to being the ethnic people of God. Scripture makes that clear. You read in Romans Romans 9 through 11. They had the word of God. They were, they were granted. They had the temple, they had all those things that they had in the Old Testament to demonstrate the reality of God. He led them. He redeemed them. Great benefit, but not any kind of predisposition towards salvation, no advanced level. Well, you're, you are closer to the kingdom. You are already in the kingdom. When it comes to salvation, there was no benefit in that sense. They were not ahead of anyone else. It didn't start ahead in the race. In fact, he says to them, as far as salvation goes, entering into the kingdom that Jesus was bringing as he came the first time, entering into that kingdom, God can raise up for himself stones that are children of Abraham. Your ethnic heritage in this sense doesn't count for anything, right? In, in this sense, and you are trusting in it. And in fact, it, it's such a visceral picture because he's probably standing in the Jordan itself. They're standing on the banks, ready to come in. And it's like, he's pointing to the very rocks around there in the wilderness. These stones have just as much chance as you, because it is God. He's the one who does the work and he is the one who, who populates his kingdom. You are not in it either by your self-righteousness or by your ethnic heritage. And then we began last week as the final part of his rebuke is that you will not be spared in the day of judgment because you are not truly righteous, because your ethnic heritage does not guarantee you the kingdom and you think that those things will be sufficient. Because of that, the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. Remember the illustration. So they're like the dry, dead branches of, of the and trees and vines that the farmer goes through the field after the harvest time and he looks and he says, Take that one down, take that one down. Then the farmer or someone else, his hired hand, comes and takes the axe and, and draws a bead on the, on, the, on the base of the tree, swings back, and they're in, in mid swing. And that's what he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, in spite of their assumed righteousness, that they are one breath away from judgment. In fact, judgment is already upon them. That's again, that's the picture of the swinging ax. It is already there. They don't have to wait for judgment in that sense. There's not going to be any decision at the end of time. Well, are they judged or are they not? They're already judged. The only thing that keeps that judgment from falling is the next breath that they breathe. And I ask you, how did that impact you this week? It was a difficult week as, I, as I've been wrestling through these things to go through the basic things that I have to do. The, you know, life has to be lived. We have to, I was fixing my washing machine this week, trying to fix my car, failing miserably. All of these things that have to be done. And yet weighty on my mind is the fact that billions are one breath away from hell. And that's right and good. It creates in us the proper kind of tension. We're restful because we know that this is the work that God does. And yet we're also urgent because we know the ax is laid at the root of the trees And so we long to preach the message of repentance, of turning to Christ. I hope that that was urgent for you this week, and that will remain urgent for you all of your life, only increasing, not a panic, not frantic, somehow if I don't do it, if I don't get out there right now, but to remember that the ax is laid at the root of the tree, that for every man, the judgment of God who is not in Christ, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is already upon them. It has already been decided. We call them back from judgment, not we, we somehow provide a way that then that decision will be made. It's already made. So now let's look at John's proclamation, the, his further proclamation of judgment. He begins to get specific about what this judgment will actually be. He, he's, he's talked about it. He says it will be the trees that are chopped down will be thrown into the fire if they have not borne that fruit of repentance, which he said the Pharisees and Sadducees did not have. And then in verse 11, he's going to talk about his, his own role. He says, as for me, so this is, the, this is John prepares men for judgment. This is what he's going to say. I'm not the one that brings the judgment. Don't misunderstand me. In that sense, I'm not your judge. I'm preparing you to meet the judge. And it is my responsibility to prepare the way rightly and wisely. Because he says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And as we have discussed, John's baptism was external. He was baptizing in the water, down there in the Jordan, taking them down, bringing them back up. So it was an external symbol of what was going on internally, certainly. But he says the only kind of, essentially, the only kind of washing I can do is external. It's the only one I can do. I'm doing that as a representation of your response to my message, but it isn't me. And the only thing I'm doing is is essentially washing the dirt off as that picture of what God will do is doing on the inside. I baptize you with water for repentance. So it was an external baptism. He was helping them to see. He was causing them to recognize that they were in danger of judgment. And he was giving them a way to show, to demonstrate externally what was going on in their heart. That's what his baptism was all about. But also then, necessarily, his John's baptism was incomplete, Even that external baptism, even the water baptism was not yet fully complete because Jesus had not yet come. And this is made clear for us in scripture. And really John is making it clear here. He's going to point to the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Jesus' baptism. But what we will see studying through that and other passages is that then that baptism, the spirit baptism, really transforms the water baptism as well from John's baptism to baptism in the name of Jesus. So there's yet one more transformation that even the external baptism has to take. We said that it is essentially was most likely came out of the, the picture of proselyte baptism where those who wanted to get into Judaism had to be washed at one time baptism. Well, now John's baptism is, this is how you get out of Judaism. This is how you escape from it because it's a false religion now, right? Before you were doing what God told you to do in the old Testament. Now, we have Christ has come, your Messiah is here. You have to believe in him. So I'm baptizing you out of Judaism into the gospel. But even that was not yet sufficient because scripture says, in Acts 2.38, when, when Peter is preaching, right after Jesus has ascended back to be with the Father, and he is presenting the message, the message, repent, he says this, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts, when Paul is speaking to a, and we'll revisit these this group in, in a little while, but he's speaking to a group of John's disciples in Acts 19.4, who just, they were out still wandering around, they were in Ephesus of all places. He says to them, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had a a water baptism that was now in the name of the Lord Jesus. So even this external baptism has to be transformed. That is, it now is in the name of the Lord Jesus, whereas before it was in essentially the name of John or the repentance that John was proclaiming, where he says, look, you got to repent and believe in Jesus. Now when we are baptized with water, it is in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not simply or only repentance, but repentance and trust in Christ. Right? The, the two are inseparably linked, as we've been discussing. But his baptism was incomplete. D.A. Carson says it follows that just as John's purpose was to prepare the way for the Lord by calling people to repentance, so his baptism pointed to the one who would bring the eschatological, the spiritual baptism uh, in the Holy Spirit, and then, as we will see in several weeks, with fire. John's baptism was essentially a preparation, and that's what he's been saying all along. He says, I am not the judge. When he's asked if he's the Christ, he says, I'm not the Christ. I am the one who comes before. I am not the Messiah. I prepare the way for the Messiah. And then he turns and he says... But there is one coming who is the judge. That's essentially what he says. Jesus is the judge. There is one, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The judge is on his way. It's not me. I am preparing you to meet your maker and to meet your judge. Jesus is it. Now, on what basis does John then proclaim that he isn't the judge? Because remember, he was a great man. His his ministry was highly impactful in the entire region. They were all coming. In fact, the ramifications of his ministry flow all the way into Acts 19, where in Ephesus, you've got disciples of John. A tremendous impact, tremendous ministry. A great man. Jesus said that John was the greatest man to be born. So why doesn't he qualify as the Messiah? Why can't he say, yes, this is it? Well, he gives the reason. The one who is coming after me is mightier than I, the greatness of Jesus. We only have one line here. We're going to flesh this out a little bit, but this is fundamental to the nature of repentance, to the nature of being a believer is to understand the greatness of Jesus. You recognize your sin, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, that this deserves eternal uh, condemnation, but you must recognize the greatness of the one who came, and in John's case, who was coming. He says, he is mightier than I. Really, the, the idea there is strong, one who is able to wield the greatest amount of force, but also the idea is one of authority, one who has the highest rank. And those two go together. The one who has the highest rank has the most power. That's the way it worked in that society. Still works largely that way today. The one who has the highest authority can then exercise his power over you. And in this case, right, Jesus has the highest authority and he has the greatest power. The one who is coming after me is mightier than I. And he doesn't say it here, but as we fill this out from other passages of scripture, which this morning will take some time to do, because I think our dwelling on the mighty nature of Christ is fundamental for our understanding of repentance. Turn to John chapter 1. Here we have the same incident, the same time frame, described by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John. But he's describing what happened and what John the Baptist says. So in John 1.15... And the word became flesh, says John, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He says essentially the same thing as a higher rank. That's what our word even in Matthew meant. The one who has greater authority, a military, really and political term. He, he ranks higher. He's up the chain of command. But the reason that that is true is because he existed before me. And certainly he is not speaking of a human existence because John was actually born before Jesus was. He's not saying, well, Jesus is older than me. So since he's the older guy, then he has the greater force. So what is he saying when he says that Jesus was before me or he existed before me? Again, he's saying much more than just he was in the world before I was. And in fact, I think even in John, the testimony of John the apostle is to what this really means. It means he is eternal. That's what John is saying. He is the eternal God. He is the one who has always existed. I am a created being, is what John is saying. I am finite. I am one who came into the world. I was created. But this one who is coming after me is mightier because he has no creator. In fact, he is the creator. He doesn't flesh all this out here, but that's the idea. He existed before me. Look, just glance up at John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He existed in the beginning, not was created at the beginning. He existed there. He's the eternally pre-existent God. And that's essentially what John is saying. He says, he existed before me. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's also bound up in this idea. Jesus is the creator, as we will see. He is mighty over creation because he existed before it. And therefore he has authority over all of it. And his authority over his creation is complete. And therefore his authority over men and men, even like John, the greatest of men, his authority over them, his power over them is complete because of his pre-existence. He existed before me. He is eternal. He is creator. He is God. That's what he's saying. That's why he's mightier. Because think about it. Any other human being, right? Could, you know, he could be born before. He could have come ages before. He could have some kind of great power, but any other human being, essentially what John is saying is on the same plane as me. This is one who's on a totally different plane He existed before me. He has always existed. Now, John goes on further. We'll skip over down to verse 34. We'll come back to John 1 in a minute. But he says, I I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And there we have it. He is God. He makes it obvious. That's the title of Jesus that focuses most on his deity. See, Son of God does not mean something less than God, Son of God means the one who perfectly represents all of the attributes of God. A human begets a human, my human son. God begets, as it were, God, and only God. There can be nothing other than that. The son, eternally the son, as we know from scripture, the one who perfectly represents the father. That's son of God. And that's what John says. He existed before me. He is mightier than I because he existed before me. And he himself is the son of God. God himself come to take on human flesh, nothing less than fully God, even though also fully human. Wow. This is the God who is mightier than John, the greatest of men. And this is what the world will not acknowledge. Turn to Colossians chapter one to flesh this out, just kind of in 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 a final vein. There's much more we could say. But this idea of Jesus being preexistent, it really flows out into a whole series of um, truths that flow from that. And Paul brings those to us in Colossians chapter 1. The context in Colossians 1 is he's speaking of the joy of redemption of what God has accomplished in Christ. And therefore, really, he's going to lay out in verse 15 the credentials of Christ to bring this redemption. And this is what he says in Colossians 1.15, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is preeminent over it. He is the one who rules it and controls it. It is his birthright, as it were. That's what, create, that's what it means to be the firstborn of all creation. Creation is his to do with as he pleases. Why? For by him, verse 16, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, this fleshes out what it means that he was pre-existent. He's the one that created everything and was all created for him. That's how mighty he is. Everything in creation was specially designed ultimately to go back to God through Christ. It was created for him to show his glory, to demonstrate his greatness, to exalt him and to worship him all of creation. That's how mighty Jesus is as God. And that's of course why John is saying, I'm not that. The one who comes after me is mightier than I. Verse 17, he is before all things. Again, he existed before them. And in him, all things hold together. He literally binds them together with the force of his will. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Again, it talks about the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Essentially, this is John's message. You're repenting because the one who is to have first place is coming, and it isn't me It is the great king of the universe, the one who existed before me. He is mightier than I. It is he to whom you will bow, and it is he who will be your judge. He is mightier than I. And John then makes the contrast. As he was coming back in Matthew chapter 3, he was coming as mightier than I. And then he's going to give the the greatest possible contrast that he can within that culture to us that we have a hard time resonating with this because we don't do anything like what John is about to describe. But he he doesn't choose this illustration lightly. When he talks about mighty and of higher rank and having greater power, he's then going to choose an illustration which demonstrates, as far as you possibly could in that culture, his own lowliness in relationship to Jesus. And so he says this, he's mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. And John and Luke says, I am not fit to even... Uh, to even remove or to begin to, to remove the thong of his sand or to even start to take off, to even touch his feet as though I would remove his shoes in order to wash them. Now think about that. I, again, our culture, we don't, we don't do that. You know, we don't stumble in off the street and somebody goes, oh, let me take off your tennis shoes and let me remove your socks and wash your sweaty feet. We have no idea what that means. In fact, I can't even come up with an illustration that begins to represent this for you because we don't have one. We don't do anything like this for anybody, essentially, and certainly not any kind of casual contact. But in the time of Christ, what you did when you entered into a home, if you were to be shown respect, if you were considered valuable, and really that's anyone who came into your home, you were supposed to show respect for them, then you would have a servant generally who would do what? Who would be waiting at the door, who would bend down and would begin to undo your sandal so that he might wash the dung and dirt off your feet as an expression of, you, of, of, of favor and of worthiness in that sense. That you were being, that the host was saying, I consider you valuable. John says, Look, I, I'm not even that close. I am so far from being who Jesus is that I can't even start the process of washing his feet. That's how I relate, that's how I rank in relationship to his mightiness. I am so low that I may not even touch his sandal. I may not even begin to remove it because he is so much greater than I. I am not fit. Of the lowliest tasks of a slave in that day, removing the sandals of his master and any guests and then washing them would have been essentially the lowliest. Remember that it was this symbol that Jesus himself used in teaching his servants about what it means to actually humble yourself. And John is saying, look, I am so lowly, that I may not even enter into this ritual before my master, because he is so much greater. And again, we've said, it was not that John wasn't a great man horizontally? He had a tremendous influence. He was a righteous man, the best of men. Jesus calls him again, the greatest of men who have been born of women. The greatest of men is not even worthy in relationship to to the deity of Christ, to the righteousness of Christ, to the power of Christ, is not even worthy to unlatch his sandal, to begin to untie his shoes, as it were, and take them off. This is how we stand before a holy God. But I ask you, do you believe it? The world does not. In any way do they ever believe that Jesus is this mighty and they are this lowly. Ever. It is the fundamental nature of repentance to understand and acknowledge that Jesus is great, infinitely mighty and great as Holy God, and that we are nothing in comparison to Him. But the world rejects this message out of hand. And in fact, unfortunately, the Christian church has rejected this message as well. And we do not go presenting the message of, you are not even worthy. Notice John starts with himself here I'm not worthy. As one who is even, in this sense, who, who is the herald of the Messiah. I am not worthy. If he's not worthy, who of you are worthy? We don't go presenting that message. You are not worthy to begin to unlatch a sandal before a holy God. You don't even get on the Richter scale of power or importance. You don't even start to touch it. You don't even set a tremor to it. You are nothing in comparison to the greatness and might and righteousness of a holy God. And yet John not only believed this, he embraced it. It is the sign of true repentance. This kind of humility. Yet you go to someone's door or you talk to your neighbors or you talk to your friends. And what is the issue? Always there is some mitigating factor. Always they are good enough. Always they are close enough. God will let them into heaven. He will allow them in. Always Christ is minimized and man is exalted. And this is what we do in our gospel. You really are good. You really deserve more than you have. So God will provide it for you. You really are great. You just haven't been able to achieve your potential. So Jesus will show you how great you are. Listen to Christian radio for just a minute. And that's essentially what you always hear. You really are great. So Jesus came to show that. He came to make you as great as you really are. That's not the message of John the Baptist. Is I am not great. I am nothing. Guys, will you believe it? Now, I understand that most of you here confess that. But what are the ramifications in your life? If you really believe he is this great, then you are humbled before him and it brings him greatest glory. The more lowly you recognize that you are, the the greater becomes his sacrifice on your behalf. It becomes a mighty, unbelievable condescension for him to reach down and save you when you understand that you weren't even allowed to reach up and touch his foot. may begin to grasp what that will mean in your life before him. And then think for a moment about the task of evangelism. And if we had to try to somehow convince men that that was the truth, it would never believe us ever because it is the heart of man to believe that he rules, that he is on the throne and no one will take him off. Not, not that, not that he's, you know, that he is, he's, he's getting to the throne, but that he is on the throne, that he deserves the throne. This is what man always believes. John says differently. He is mighty. I am not, I don't deserve to touch his foot. That dirty foot that, you know, I am so lowly that if that could be the case, that I wouldn't even be able to touch it. His very dirt would be untouchable by me. He is so great. Now, back to John. So I want want you to see this fleshed out. How did John express this? Because not only, it's much more, please hear me, it is much more than just admitting this. It is one thing to admit it. It is another to delight in it. And the true child of God delights in his own humility that he might truly exalt the son of God because he so much delights in the son. And so it is not a grudging, condescending, you know, being forced to my knees because I've, it's, I've finally been shown that that's the case. And, and so I must do it. It is a joyful falling on my face before the mightiness of a holy God, rejoicing that I might show his greatness by understanding my lowliness. And this is what made John so great. This is perhaps the number one reason why he was considered the greatest of men. That combined with the fact that he is the herald of the Messiah, should have, could have, of all men said, look, I'm special. I herald the Messiah. I'm the one that has this tremendous ministry. Look at me. Of all men ever born, he had more right to do that than any. He's the only one. Up to this point in history, who had ever actually introduced the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, coming as rightful king? Not finishing his work, but coming as the king. And so this man of any should have said, I deserve some glory. Look what he said, John chapter three. You you know this is coming, but it just it doesn't hit us properly until we begin to grasp it and do it ourselves. In John chapter three, verse twenty-eight. It says, you yourselves are witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. Now the context here is they're coming to him saying, now Jesus is baptizing. This Jesus who came to you and that you baptized, he's now baptizing more people than you. And they're going out to him. What do you think about that, John? Where is your ministry? Where's where's all your followers? Where's your impressive resume? Look at all these people coming to be baptized by me. And John doesn't even give this a second thought. He answered, he said, look, I'm not the Christ. I already told you that. And so what are you thinking? Since I'm not the Christ, why would I ever get in the way of the Messiah? Why would I even think about that? It's unthinkable. And why would you think it? How could you even begin to wrap your mind around the idea that I might need to be great when I've already told you I'm not the Christ? That's fundamental. There's only one Christ. Everyone else is at the same plane, even the friend of the bridegroom, as we will say, Even the best man is no more and no less than every other person, which is in the, in the eyes or, or in comparison with the Messiah, absolutely nothing. So he says, Look, I, I don't even understand why you're bringing this to me. I told you I wasn't the Messiah. He goes on. Verse 29 He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom. So look, it's not my bride that we're here It's not my bride that we're here for. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. I rejoice that he receives the glory because it's his bride. And really John was part of that, but he really, he recognizes his special nature in in his role, which is I'm the one that introduced the bride to the bridegroom. What a a precious position. But even I, my greatest joy is simply to hear the voice of the bridegroom, to rejoice that he is being introduced to his bride. He will receive that beautiful bride, and I rejoice in that. And, And so, therefore, I deserve and desire to be nothing because of his greatness. And then he goes on to state it. He must increase. I must decrease. You know those words. You've heard them over and over. But I ask you that sentence before that. So this joy of mine has been made full. Is your joy full when Jesus looks good and you don't? Is it your greatest delight when his character and nature is exalted and when yours is nowhere to be seen? The way you will know this is true. One is when there's direct persecution. When someone comes against you and in the name of Christ, they persecute you. When you can take joy in that, this is directly true. I rejoice because he's looking great in my suffering. But for us who do not have direct persecution, it is most, it is most clearly found, this joy that you have in Jesus looking great because you are worthy of nothing, it is found in trials, is it not? And so you can sit here and say, I, I affirm this. I must decrease. He must increase. And yet every trial you complain and every trial, you are frustrated and bitter and angry. And this is not true for you because in every trial, when you pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, he increases, you decrease. And that is why your joy is made full in trial. Because when he is seen there, and when you serve him there, and when you honor him there, he is at his greatest, as it were. That is where people will clearly see it. Are you rejoicing? Certainly when things are great, you are to be saying, this is nothing of me. This is all my great heavenly father. This is all through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should demonstrate it. But it's demonstrated much more when things are not great. And you find joy in those things. John is saying, I love to hear the voice of the bridegroom. I love that he's receiving his bride. I love that he is increasing. I must decrease. And this is the the cry of repentance. I am nothing. I am a sinner before a holy God. I deserve eternal hell. He is the great one. He must increase. I must decrease. What did Jesus say? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's what this means. He is great and I am not. It's not some kind of weird psychological, you know, beating of yourself up. That's how I deny myself. It is recognizing that he is great and that you, in comparison with him, are nothing. That's denying yourself. And that's how you come to Jesus. It's the only way you come. You cannot fool yourself into thinking you are repentant like the Pharisees and Sadducees did when they did not delight at all in the coming of Jesus. They hated it. So their primary fruit of repentance that they would not exhibit is rejoicing in the coming of the Messiah. That's primary. All the other fruits of repentance, of obedience, are bound up in that one, that you rejoice that he is mighty and that you are nothing. John did, and he presents that message to us. He is mighty. The one who is coming after me is mightier than I. And now he's going to explain how that flushes itself out. Right? All true believers love the greatness of Christ and love by his grace, their own humility. And this is the primary testimony to the reality of their repentance. And it is only the only way, by the way that you will ever grasp a hold of Christ because you will always be in the way of that grasping until you truly repent, recognizing your bankruptcy before a Holy God, you will always get in the way of the reaching for Christ. And instead you will grab yourself as it were your own glory, your own desires, You'll only grab hold of what you want, and that will always be in the way until you recognize His greatness and delight to see Him exalted and yourself humbled.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace marvel Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online online. And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.